Proverbs chapter 11 this morning. Proverbs chapter 11, we're in verse 20. Remember, last week we began with the perverse in heart is an abomination to the Lord, but the blameless in their walk are his delight. We talked about the the abomination, the things uh, that uh, are an abomination to the Lord, and we talked as well about those two uh, contrasting concepts of the perverse or the twisted uh, and the, those that bring delight to the Lord. And so we, we uh, are beginning right in the middle of the verse with that little contrasting word, but but the blameless in their walk are his delight. King James translates the upright. And uh, there are two Hebrew words, really, for the word upright. And they're used in the book of Proverbs. There's the word yashar, which means straight. We saw that back in uh, verse 3, uh, where it says, The integrity of the upright will guide them but the falseness of treacherous will destroy them. Uh, we saw it again in verse 6, the righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the treacherous will be caught in their own greed. And we saw it in verse 11, by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it's torn down. The other word is the word tamim, which means entire or whole, it speaks of integrity and uh, honesty. It's most often translated perfect in the King James especially. And uh, the word is used in Amos chapter 5, uh, verse 10. If you look there, you get a little further insight into its meaning. Amos chapter 5, verse 10. They hate him who reproves in the gate they abhor him who speaks with tamim with integrity and uh, so it corresponds with that which is is complete uh, that which is in accord with that which is true and uh, we saw it in uh, verse 5 this word where it says the righteousness of the blameless translated blameless there will smooth his way uh, you see it again in uh, chapter 28, Proverbs 28, verse 10, where it says, He who leads the upright astray, there's the word yashar, uh, astray in an evil way, will himself fall into his own pit, but the tamim, the blameless, will inherit good. Again in verse 18, he who walks blamelessly will be delivered, but he who is crooked will fall at once. So the word that's used here is tamim. One of the distinctive things about this particular word, tamim, is that in the book of Leviticus, repeatedly the word is used, and it is without blemish over and over again in the book of Leviticus without blemish 
So the word speaking really of those things that are ethical, those things that are that are sound, those things that are upright in that sense. And uh, that's who we're speaking of here. But one aspect of the individual's life that is considered blameless, and that is his walk, his walk. And the way you arrive at that, the King James translates in the way, we've often seen this word, derek. Derek or derek. Uh, always speaks of one's walk. It's a way of action. It's, the, it's a mode of life. It's the conduct of the individual. Uh, the root word means to tread or to trample. Uh, that is, it's a path that's well-worn uh, by, by a constant walking. And in many, many places in the Old Testament, particularly in the Psalms and the Proverbs, it's dealing with the derek of Yahweh, derek of the Lord, the way of the Lord. Um, Proverbs 22, Proverbs 22, verse 6. Just give you a couple of examples of this. Train up the child in the way, in the direct, the, uh, the, 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 the way that uh, he ought to walk. Train up a child in the way that he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. The word is used in Genesis 18, we said it's used repeatedly in the Old Testament. Not always when you see the word way uh, is it the word direct, but more often it is than any of the other words. But in, uh, in chapter 18 of Genesis, you remember that the Lord is about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. His attitude, though, toward Abraham is that Abraham is his friend. You may recall in... Uh, in the 15th chapter of John, the Lord says, Henceforth I'll call you no more servants, but I'll call you friends. And then he explains, because the servant doesn't know the motive of the heart of his master, but the friend does. The difference between the servant aspect of our relationship with Jesus Christ and the friend aspect is God lets the friend in on the inner secret. Now, this is what's happening here. Because Abraham is called on the basis of this incident a friend of God. And uh, God meets with him, assures him of his, of his promise once again, and uh, then says in verse 19 of Genesis chapter 18, For I have chosen him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the direct of the Lord, the way of the Lord. In other words, to walk with God. And how do you do that? Here it tells you. By doing righteousness and justice. Doing the thing that's right, the thing that is straight, the thing that is good. In order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Now, there's a very interesting thing in that verse that relates to the verse that we read previously in Proverbs 22, and that is that a man not only has a responsibility to walk in the way of the Lord, but he has a responsibility to command his children after him to do that. I think sometimes that we, in this um, world of isolation, uh, we often wash our hands 
of our children at a very early age. They get to a certain age and we say, well, my job is done. And I don't have to, I don't have any responsibility anymore. Do you remember that, that uh, Phineas, Phineas and Hophni, the two sons of Eli, were probably well into their 30s or older when God told Eli, I'm going to condemn your household. Your sons are going to die. Your household is condemned. Eventually you'll die. And there will be, there'll be no more household of Eli left. Why? Why? Because your sons made themselves vile and you restrained them not. You didn't do anything about it. You didn't command your children to follow the way of the Lord. You did not interfere with their life. God wants you to do that with your children. I think a lot of times we're being told today that you've got to be careful that you don't turn your children off. Well, I don't know how you feel about that, but I know how God feels. God wants you to do whatever is necessary to bring your children to a place where they will follow the way of the Lord. You are responsible for that. It's your responsibility to train them up in the way that they should go. So this is the meaning of the, of the word as it's used here. And here we're talking about the person who is, who is perfect, whole. Uh, there is integrity in his walk. He's a man that, that you can count on uh, because he is walking the way of the Lord. All of the contests between the, the Lord and man all of the contests really boil down to this. Whose will will prevail? Whose will will prevail? There's a constant conflict that's set up between the revealed will of God and the will of man. It happened in the Garden of Eden. Will Eve do what God has commanded or will she not? And when she did not, then forever that contest has been going on. God's will versus man's will. You see, what, what happens to the person who decides he's going to walk the way of the Lord is he, he says no to his will and yes to God's will. And I, I can empathize with each of you. It is not always an easy thing. Denying oneself is never really easy. Saying no to what I want to do the thing that pleases God is never easy, but it's right. It's right. God wants us to learn to delight ourselves in those things that delight Him. Now, in Exodus chapter 5, we see an illustration of this. Exodus chapter 5. And verse 2. When Moses comes into the court of Pharaoh, Pharaoh, who believes that he is a god in his own right, says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And besides, even if I did, <laughs> is implied. I still wouldn't let them go. 
I have decided. Here is this great contest between God and man. The great contest between a man who, uh, who, who, who is an authority, a ruler, a man who has a high opinion of himself, and he pits his will against God's. Now, in actuality, if God came forth with all of his power, the power of man is a pittance by comparison. God could force any one of you to do his will. And, of course, the question arises, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he force me? The answer is quite simple. God is committed by his own sovereignty, by his own grace, not to manipulate the will of man. He wants you to choose to love him. He wants you to choose to go his way. He wants you to choose to do the right thing. But when man does his own will, there are built-in consequences. It's not as though God intervenes and... Uh, um, destroys man um, in a rash way, but rather God has, God has said there, there are two paths. One leads to life and one leads to death. This path of life is called the way of the Lord. The path to death is the way of man. You're at a crossroads. You make a choice. When a person chooses of his own will to go the way of death, and it ends up in death, who's, who's to blame? When a person chooses the way of life rather than the way of death, he shows tremendous wisdom. And so... God wants us to learn this, and he wants us to learn that, that his, his way is not grievous. His will is not grievous. Doing what he wants you to do is a good thing rather than a bad thing. Over in chapter 9 of Exodus, in verse 17, Moses is speaking to Pharaoh after the seventh plague, which was a supernatural hailstorm, and uh, it says that the Lord is speaking now through Moses and saying, still, verse 17, still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. The real problem in doing the will of God, going the way of God, walking with God, delighting God's heart is the pride of man, exalting oneself, deciding that I know best and therefore I am going to pay attention to me rather than paying attention to Almighty God and to his plan and his purposes. Over in Jeremiah chapter 44 and verse 16, you, you might want to just flip over to that. You have Jeremiah speaking to the people as they are in the land of Egypt. Um, fascinating passage, really, because what, what took place was that Jeremiah had predicted 
that there would be the 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 great uh, uh, crisis in the land, and uh, he had predicted that there would be a captivity of the people. There would also be a remnant of the people who would escape captivity by Babylon and uh, would go into exile in the land of Egypt. And uh, he gives a description of the the kind, gives a description prophetically of the thing that they are facing uh, with that remnant in Egypt. And Jeremiah was among that remnant. And uh, one of the things they have is is uh, women's lib. And uh, in Jeremiah 44, uh, verse 15, it says, Then all the men who are aware that their wives were burning sacrifice to other gods, along with all the women who were standing by as a large assembly, including all of the people who were living in Pathros in the land of Egypt, responded to Jeremiah saying, now you notice the women are very much in charge here. They're leading the worship of idolatry. And they're the ones that are speaking now to Jeremiah. And here's what they said. As for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we're not going to listen to you. We're not going to listen to you. But rather, and then it goes on and talks about uh, some very fascinating things, we will certainly carry out every word that proceeds from our mouth by burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven. Hold that in your mind a minute. I'm going to talk about that just a second. And pouring out libations to her, just as we ourselves and our forefathers, our kings, our princes did in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. And then we had plenty of food and were well off and saw no misfortune. But since we stopped burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out libations to her, we have lacked everything and have met our end by the sword and by the famine. And, said the women, when we are burning sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven and were pouring out libations to her, was it without our husbands that we made for her sacrificial cakes in her image and poured out libations to her? Now, this is uh, just a little diversion, okay, but I, since we're, we mentioned this passage, I can't resist telling you just briefly about this. There is a great religion, anti-God religion, which began in the time of Nimrod. Nimrod, in the Old Testament, was a mighty hunter, literally, against the Lord, a defiant man. It was Nimrod's tribe who led the, the uh, building of the Tower of Babel. And uh, the Tower of Babel was a, was, was a rebellion against God in more ways than one. Uh, the Tower of Babel uh, was, was a defiance of God in terms of his judgment. They were going to build a tower to heaven, protecting themselves from any further flood. They were going to build a tower to Almighty God, uh, I mean to, to the, the God that they would worship, the God of their own heart. The pride of man lifted up at the Tower of Babel. But that was the beginning of what uh, we know today as astrology. Because the Tower of Babel had the astrological sign. It was related to star worship and a whole lot of other uh, pagan ideas. So we even have astrology today, and it relates clear back to that time at the Tower of Babel and the rebellion of man against God. 
But at that same time, there was the creation of a system of religion, which in the Bible sometimes is referred to as System Babel, or System Babylon. And uh, there was a, a whole lot of pagan ideas that you find in many religions of the world that arose from that particular day. Uh, you have, for example, uh, the, the mother with the man-child. Uh, and you have the, uh, the idea of uh, um, a, a tea or a tea as a sign, as a sign of uh, uh, the, the, the great religion, the word Tyrus actually coming from that and related to the calf deity uh, and so on. And uh, the sign was uh, a cross a crossed piece of wood. Um, not only that, but uh, many other related things came out of this. We know from several passages of Scripture and a whole lot from history uh, that they uh, got involved in, in uh, the, the worship of various plants, uh, such as a lily, uh, and uh, uh, any kind of uh, uh, thing that might speak of fertility, like a rabbit as an example, and so on and so forth. Now all of these things, and there are too many to mention to you now, all of these things were related to system Babylon. And they were a part of the pagan culture, part of which influenced the nation of Israel at this time and at other times in their history. Then, later on in the history, after Jesus Christ had come and the church of Jesus Christ had established itself, the various Nero's and and uh, 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 Caesars and so on uh, persecuted the church, went through terrible persecution. But a period of time in their history came where there was one emperor by the name of Constantine who said, if you can't join them, I mean, if you can't lick them, join them. Uh, after all, the church, the church of Jesus Christ is so powerful and has such influence on the people uh, that the best thing to do is quit fighting her and join her. And at that time, Constantine began to bring impurity into the church. And one of the ways he did this was he just simply declared that uh, all of Rome was Christian, right? That the Christian religion was the official religion of the Roman Empire. And uh, people came and said, but, but we worship the calf deities, that's all right. No problem, just call it Christian. Someone else comes along and says, but we worship this God. That's fine, but just change the name of your God, worship the same way, and change the name of your God, and, and, and call it Christian. And then everybody's at peace, and there's no problem. And so the result was that there was, there was uh, a, a, a tremendous, a tremendous uh, move in the Roman Empire that literally made the church of that period of time, the official church. Now, that doesn't mean that Constantine ever became a Christian. If you ever see a book that talks about Constantine, the first Christian emperor, whether we'll see him in heaven or not is very doubtful. But nevertheless, he was instrumental in wedding the church and the state, all right? What happened then was, when, you, when, when, the, when Christianity failed to challenge 
the godless religions of the world and stand apart as being different, then there, was, there will be a, a, a diluting of the message of the church every time. You can be sure of that. And what happened in the time of Constantine was simply this. The church, which was intended to be in the world but not of the world, allowed the world to get into the church. And what happened was that the church then began to pick up pagan practices. All right? And so the, the queen of heaven with a child became the Madonna with Christ. The worship of Taras became the worship of the T or the cross. Incidentally, the word translated cross in the New Testament means a pale, that is a stake. Now the cross may have been crossed, but we are never we are never to worship the cross the way it often is. And the cross evolved, you know, it started out like this and it changed to this and then there are all kinds of other relationship to that. But you see, the practice of that goes all the way back to system Babylon. Not only that, but when you get into the history of this, it's absolutely amazing. Because did you know that is where the Easter Bunny began? With system Babylon. How do we get the Easter Bunny into Easter. How about the Easter lily? Now, why have I said all that? Because this text is talking about something with which we're all familiar. What do a lot of people have for breakfast on Easter Sunday morning? Anybody tell me? Okay, hard-boiled eggs, that's part of the fertility thing. What else? Hot cross buns. These are the hot cross buns right here in Jeremiah 44 where it says we're going to bake cakes to the queen of heaven. Now, let me tell you, every time somebody bakes cakes to the queen of heaven, they are baking cakes not to Mary. They are baking cakes to Nimrod's wife. Baking cakes, if you please, to Jezebel, who is also one of the priestesses and mentioned in the book of Revelation as being uh, typical of the priestess. And remember this. The system, the system Babylon, has great emphasis upon the deity of a woman. Okay? Don't be fooled by the counterfeits that Satan puts forth these days to detract from the truth of God. But now what's in the heart of these women in Jeremiah? It says, as for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we're not going to listen to you. Their will pitted against God's will. And that's the way it ever is. The blameless, though, are God's delight. Now, when we go astray, when we don't do what he wants us to, as I said, God does not manipulate man's will and force him to do his will. But if you look with me at Psalm 119, you'll see that when we go astray, the Lord does something for us. In verse 67, 
of Psalm 119, it says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep thy word. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, also in the book of Proverbs, who the Lord loves, he disciplines. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. God brings circumstances into our life to throw us in utter dependence upon him because it's his purpose that we walk in the way of life, that we walk in the way of the Lord, that we get off the path of death. God is seeking to rescue us sometimes by hurting us. That's not the explanation of all suffering. There are a multitude of reasons for suffering. One of them is because of discipline. But that is an explanation for some of those things. God doesn't let us get away with sin forever. Be sure your sin will find you out. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep thy word. Look at verse 71 and see the attitude of the psalmist. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. The law of thy mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. In 1659, there was a man who wrote a book. His name was Thomas Brooks. The book that he wrote was The Mute Christian Under the Rod. The Mute Christian Under the Rod. And he said in that book, these words, afflictions are the golden key by which the Lord opens the rich treasure of his word to his people's soul. Let me tell you something, men. Whether God is using, using his chastening rod on you because you have turned astray from his way, or whether he is using his chastening rod for some other purpose, capitalize on those moments. In times of suffering, when our hearts are heavy and sensitive, we are sensitized to spiritual truth in a way that we could not be otherwise. The Lord loves us enough to put us through those trials so that we can grasp his word. When we grasp his word, we will know him and we will know his way. And when we know his way, we will hear his voice saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. Turn not to the right hand or to the left. We'll learn what it is to walk with God. And God will put you through the ringer. This very day, some of you may face trials and tribulations and difficulties. Remember this. What God is doing in your life is bringing you closer and closer to himself so that you can walk in his way, so that you can be disciplined to follow his path the way that he wants you to go. In Psalm 11, there's a commentary on this principle, beginning at verse 5. Now, the first part of this psalm has the Lord as a refuge. You flee to the Lord. Beginning in verse 4, you have the Lord in his holy temple, the throne in heaven, and his eyes beholding the sons of men. He's watching. And in verse 5, then, it starts, 
with this commentary. The Lord puts to the test the righteous and the wicked. Now remember, the wicked are an abomination to God. The forward, the, the twisted, the crooked, they're an abomination to God. God loathes them. God hates them. And again, I hasten to add that in Semitic literature, it's impossible to distinguish between the person and his sin. Therefore, there's no way in Hebrew really to express the fact that God hates their sin and separate it somehow from the person. That's why David says, I hate the wicked. What it means is, I hate the, the sin of the wicked. I hate wickedness. But there's no way of separating the wickedness from the man, and therefore you say you hate the man. We don't understand that in English because we have a different way of expression. Greek had a different way as well. But Hebrew, it's very difficult to make any kind of a, a distinction such as this. So when God says he, he tests the righteous and the wicked, and then he says he hates the wicked and loves the righteous or delights in the righteous, just keep in mind that God still loves the world and he loves sinners, but he hates their sin, all right? But he tests the righteous and the wicked. He delights in the, in the righteous. And he, he loathes, he abhors the wicked. Alright? So he puts them to the test. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. And like, a, like in a sandstorm, that's their, their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Now very clearly, as we so often have in the Psalms and the Proverbs, you have two things set before you. Two ways set before you. You can go the way of the wicked, which is the way of death, which is the way of man, which is the way of man's pride, which is the way of defiance of God, or you can go the way of the righteous. But your portion, your portion, your cup to go the way of the wicked is nothing but trouble. You go the way of the righteous. And even though the psalmist said in another place, many are the afflictions of the righteous, it also says that the Lord will deliver him out of them all. There's a very important lesson here. We aren't going, we aren't exempt from trial and trouble when we go the way of the Lord. But when we have trial and trouble, it leads us to God. And not only that, it, it, it opens the Word of God and gives to us new hope and new life. And we're better for it. We're better. The wicked just become more bitter. We will see the Lord's face. You see, before every person who loves the Lord Jesus Christ there is that hope, a hope that will bring you through all of the trials, all of the problems, all of the difficulties of life. There is not a thing that a Christian cannot face. Because, you see, we reckon, Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be hereafter. That glory is forever. And we're willing to suffer even along the path of life because there is life at the end. Now, which do you want, to suffer along the path of life and see his face, or suffer along the path of death 
and have only death without God and without hope to look forward to. Well, then you want to live your life, don't you, to please God. Because you see, though the wicked are an abomination to God, but the upright in heart are his delight. You remember in our studies last week, we talked not only about the forward man, but we talked about delighting the Lord, delighting the Lord with our whole heart. The Lord wants us to learn to delight Him. The word for delight is the word ratsun, ratsun, R-A-T-S-O-N. Ratsun means acceptable, pleasing, favorable to God. God wants us to live that kind of life, and if we do, then we will find real life and find as well real joy. Now, in Proverbs 11, verse 21, it goes on from there with another theme. Here's what it says. Assuredly, or the King James says, hand to hand. Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished, but the descendant of the righteous will be delivered. The evil man will not go unpunished. Now, there is a relationship between these two proverbs. Of course, first of all, because again, the contrast is there in this antithetical distich, but also because it is really talking about the consequences that are involved in the attitudes of, of verse 20. The perverse in heart are equivalent to the evil man. The abomination to the Lord is the equivalent of the fact that God will punish. The blameless, though, goes beyond the individual to his descendants. There is a perpetual blessing that comes from generation to generation to generation. And though the other generations may not be as godly as the first, nevertheless, the blessing of God perpetuates to other generations, sometimes in spite of the fact that the other generations deteriorate morally and so on. One of the reasons that God blessed Israel for many, many years, even centuries, was because he promised Abraham. <laughs> Abraham was godly, and God eventually had to send judgment upon the nation, but he even yet will bless the nation, even in their unbelief, even in their apostasy. Why? Because he promised Abraham. There's a perpetuity involved where God brings blessings. The descendants of the righteous will be delivered. And I always like this emphasis that you find in Scripture, and that is that God, God sees the wicked and deals with the wicked in terms of individual sin. But when he sees the righteous, he sees the family, the family influence. You, you read, for instance, in uh, Acts chapter 16, where the apostle Paul dealt with the Philippian jailer, and uh, he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house and thy house. When, he, when Peter condemned 
uh, Simon the Sorcerer, he didn't say, your house is going to perish. He said, you're going to perish in this time. So that, in a sense, though sometimes wickedness carries from generation to generation, it still is an individual matter. But you, as a godly man, can influence your family for generations to come. I've been looking for a piece that I wanted to read to you. I haven't found it yet. But it took, uh, uh, it's in my file somewhere, you know. You ever look for something in your files? Uh, <laughs> it's easy to file it, but it's not always easy to retrieve it. But if anybody has this, let me know. One of you probably has it. But it, 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 it takes the family of a well-known criminal who was executed and then takes the family of Jonathan Edwards, the New England preacher, uh, and follows through on his family and shows what generation after generation became. And I don't remember, again, the precise details, but a uh, high percentage of this criminal's descendants uh, were arrested and uh, were were uh, spent their life in prison and were executed and were traitors and this sort of thing. Whereas a high percentage of Jonathan Edwards' family were preachers and doctors and judges and so on, right down the line. And this, even though that is a dramatic picture of contrast, it nevertheless is quite true. Because God blesses the descendants of the righteous in a special way. Now, the Bible is unmistakably clear that sin must be dealt with. You can say this without danger of contradiction. All sin is punished. All sin is punished. No one ever, ever, ever gets away with sin. There's no chance. Sin has a way of finding you out. Now, judgment can be deferred because of the mercy of God. God would be just even if he struck people dead the moment they sinned. You realize that? God would still be just. Nothing changed. You do something wrong, you young men go into a store and you steal something off the shelf and you get away with it, you didn't get away with it. You thought you did. But you can be absolutely certain the day will come where there will be punishment for that sin. You don't get away with it. But God in mercy sometimes deserves it. God in mercy allows you enough rope so you can hang yourself. And he deserves it. But what he could do and still be God, still be just, is the moment you sin, even once, strike you dead. You can do that, aren't you glad? Anybody here glad? <laughs> Anybody been sinning lately? Sure we have. And if God was that swift in judgment, it would be no, no impugning of the character of God. God is that holy. And even the slightest sin is abhorrent to him. And therefore God could rightly and justly strike us dead the moment we sin. Send the population out a little bit. Ananias and Sapphira in the early church were struck dead the moment they lied to the Holy Spirit. I'm afraid that Valley Church would be uh, 
pretty thin in its rank if God did that to everyone. God did that as an example and as a purification of the church. I think it's very clear that whereas God purged the church in those early days, it is the responsibility of the church to purge out those that insist upon sinning. Church discipline is a very valid thing. Don't hear much about it anymore. Tragic. But I'll tell you, sin must be dealt with. But even then, the church sometimes defers sin, defers because of, of mercy, rather than dealing with it immediately. And so you've, you've got to be patient, even with the church, and as we're patient with God. But man doesn't get away with sin, even if the church misses it, even if God defers it. Sooner or later, that sin will find him out. Now, his mercy or his loyal love endures forever, Scripture tells us. And this answers the questions about why the wicked prosper and seem to go unpunished. We may turn next week to Psalm 73 and look at that briefly again. Remember, judgment may, may be deferred. Secondly, judgment may be transferred. Judgment may be transferred. The first place may be deferred. That is, God doesn't judge it immediately after it happens. But being transferred is something else. Because of the grace of God and because of the doctrine of substitution, an animal was slain in the nation of Israel. And a man would put his hand upon the head of that animal, and as the animal was being slain, he would confess his sins. That is a picture of what Jesus Christ did for you and me on the cross of Calvary. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, He who knew no sin became sin for us in our place that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ was the substitutionary lamb, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The book of Hebrews is very clear that the blood of bulls and goats atones for sin. Ever hear of Yom Kippur? Yom Day. Yom means warm. Warm speaks of the day. Yom Kippur, Kippur covering. The day of covering. The day of atonement. The Jews just celebrated it. A few weeks ago, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now listen, atonement means covering. All of the animals that were slain in the Old Testament, all of the bulls, all of the goats, all of the confession of sin, everyone covered the sin of individuals. But, the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. They could never take away sin. They could cover it. God allowed for that expediency. They could cover it, but they could never take it away. But John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus Christ, said, Behold, the Lamb of God that, what? Taketh away the sin of the world. Took it away. Removed it from their presence. Totally and completely. In the nation of Israel, there were on the Day of Atonement, 
there was a goat that was slain. The goat representing the fact of, of uh, uh, a sinful people. The goat was slain. A second goat was called the scapegoat. The scapegoat bore the, the skin and the blood of the slain goat away from the camp. So they ran away, it was chased away, carrying the, carrying the sin so that they would see it no more. That was the picture. Then a lot of people messed with that text. There are some our Seventh-day Adventist friends who say the slain goat was Christ, the scapegoat was Satan. Satan was the sin bearer. Satan took the sin away. Ah, but beloved friend, that doesn't make any sense. Christ was both goats. He both died for our sin and bore the sin away. He could do that, you see, because he is God. And the God-man, Christ Jesus, gave his life so he could bear your sin away, so that our judgment was transferred to him. But I want you to get this. Your sin was paid for. If you sinned and sinned and sinned and then finally came to the Savior, don't ever look upon your past sin as something you got away with. Certainly the scripture says there's therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But you didn't get away with that sin. Somebody paid. And that somebody was Jesus Christ. He paid. Because sin must be paid for. God couldn't have saved you. I say this reverently. But God could not save you without the death of Jesus Christ. There'd be no hope. But he did save you. I don't know about you, but I'm glad. One of the things that happens so often is when people, when people think of the grace of God in the transfer of that sin, they tend to think that somehow or another the sin was canceled without penalty. Don't ever think that. Somebody pays. Next time you sin and come to the Lord confessing your sin, realize anew and afresh, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So judgment may be deferred and judgment may be transferred, but judgment is sure. Judgment is sure. And when not atoned for, the wicked say, I'll take my chances that their chances are nil. They have no chance. They have no hope. Now that's what verse 21 is dealing with. And it's dealing with it in some very interesting detail. Again, as we mentioned, it's an antithetical district. Assuredly, the evil man will not go unpunished. But the descendants of the righteous shall be delivered. When we get into our study next week, we'll tackle that and talk a little bit more about what it means to have that assurance of sins forgiven. But how about you today? You know, I often think as we study week by week of the importance of 
coming to that place in our lives where we are willing to surrender our heart and our life to Jesus Christ. We don't press that home too often. We like to go home with it, go to work with it, chew it over. You know, I think that God wants us to just bow our heads right now. And why don't we take a moment of silent prayer and do as Scripture says, commit thy way unto the Lord. He'll bring it to pass. Commit your way to Him. Commit your direct to Him. The path that you choose. Thomas said, Lord, lead me in a plain path. The way of the Lord is a plain path. The path of the just is as a shining light that shines more and more into a perfect day. Choose Him. Choose life. Choose the right way. Just take a moment. Make certain you make that commitment to the Lord. Father, we realize that judgment is sure. Therefore, it's foolish for us to follow the way of man rather than the way of the Lord. Help us, Lord, to know that this will surely take place. And therefore, Lord, we pray that this very day in every decision we make, we will choose your way. Lord, keep us from pitting our will against your will and help us to choose your will and your will alone. Give to us a very special day at work today as we make these choices. Lord, we pray for, for that fellow that, that might be here this morning who, who really doesn't know for certain that he is on the way of the Lord, that he is living for Christ. He doesn't know for certain that he has received the substitutionary work of that Savior. Grant to him, Father, just the ability in these moments to to grasp the importance of that decision and help him before that sun sets tonight to come to know Jesus Christ in a very personal way. Dismiss us with thy blessing, we pray. We'll give you the glory for you are God and worthy of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you. Have a terrific day at work today.